become a liturgical rebel, (laughs) become somebody who thinks outside the box, you know, somebody who adheres to the principles of your faith, but thinks of new creative practices that really stir your heart and stir your spirit. Because I think that we all need those things that fit us personally, that fit the environment in which we live, that fit the family that we're a part of, and that fit the world that we're growingly aware of as well. And so, yeah, I call it (laughs) become a liturgical rebel and follow the guiding of the Holy Spirit. Welcome to the Earth Keepers podcast. This podcast is for people who seek new and better ways to love and care for the earth. It's a podcast for anyone who is deeply concerned about the harm being done to the environment on a local and global level. It's a podcast that builds community and connection between people of like heart and mind, people who believe that earth care should be integrated into every aspect of life, and for many in the Earth Keepers community that includes our spiritual lives. As we move towards solstice and look ahead to holy days and seasonal celebrations, Do you find yourself feeling disconnected sometimes from the usual songs and ceremonies? What about your personal spiritual practices? If you're like me, there are times when our meditations, prayers, and even journaling feel a bit worn out, and at times we find ourselves just going through the motions. Well, in this episode, I'll be talking to my friend, Dr. Christine Aroni-Sign, about how we can move beyond some of the habits and practices that are prescribed for us by religion and culture. In our conversation, She offers guidance for creating new forms and practices that can bring vitality to our spiritual lives, and she offers inspiration for designing new ways to gather communities around meaningful themes, symbols, and rituals. Christine and her husband, Tom Sign, are the founders of Circlewood, the parent organization of the Earth Keepers podcast. Christine, a medical doctor by training, is also the curator of the blog Godspace Light. She has authored several books that offer practical guidance for reimagining old forms in designing new practices, rituals, and ceremonies, or what many refer to as liturgies. Welcome, friends, to the Earth Keepers podcast. Christina, it's so good to have you on the podcast for the second time now. It's wonderful to be here. Maybe for the listeners who aren't familiar with who you are, could you tell us about your writing and your teaching and Maybe catch us up on what's happening these days with Godspace in this new season. Well, I think that probably the main thing that takes my time at the moment is the website Godspace Light, which is more than a blog. People tell me it is one of God's best hidden resource centers because we do provide resources for all of the liturgical seasons, for creation care, Celtic spirituality, things like hospitality, seasonal blessings and things like that. It's quite a broad array of resources that we kind of help to connect people to, as well as a blog, which is not just something that I write on, but that we actually have, I think at this point, about 15 different authors from seven different countries that participate in it. And so we have a new post that goes up every day. And part of what I love about that is that it gives us a very diverse approach to spirituality, concern for creation, and concern for other people as well. And I love that diversity. We also have a group on Facebook, and I 
do Facebook live sessions every couple of weeks, sometimes with my friend Lily Lewin, who's a very creative person, but with various other people. Last week, I did one with Mark and Lisa Scandrett, who had both done pilgrimages over the summer. And so those are still available on YouTube. And next week, I'm going to be talking to Graham Kerr, the former Galloping Gourmet. So that should be a fun session, I think. Indeed. You know, when you talk about this diversity of practice and thought that you're really promoting in the realm of spirit, it sort of gives me a sense that there probably aren't hard and fast boundaries in terms of the type of person who'd want to access this site. I mean, <laughs> it seems like there could be diverse spiritualities, really, who could access some of this material that you're providing and be interested in your blog as well. Well, that's true. I mean, we're basically Christian, though, you know, very diverse. Some of our writers are more conservative, some are more progressive, some are very definitely at the fringes of what some people would consider as Christian. Personally, I like to, well, somebody actually called me a few months. They said I was a liturgical rebel, and I've actually grabbed hold of that term. I think it's a good term to describe what I like to do. I love connecting to the seasons of the liturgical calendar, but I find that I want fresh approaches to it. I want fresh practices, so I'm constantly creating new things to help me focus in the seasons. And I find that it keeps me alive and it certainly keeps my faith more alive and growing at the same time. And would you say that's your primary reason for being creative when it comes to ceremony and ritual and more sacred practices? I think yes and no. I mean, I suppose I've got a fairly vivid imagination. I also find that I like to be doing something when I'm praying or, you know, when I'm really entering into the presence of God. I'm not one of these people who can just sit. And so I find that creating different kinds of rituals that involve writing prayers or coloring or my latest, well, not really my latest thing. I've been doing it for about 10 years now, but probably the one that is a growing passion for me that has become very much the focus of the way that I approach Christian ritual, I suppose you could say, is the development of contemplative gardens. And I create those often for different seasons or if I've been going through something that I really want to be able to focus on, I will create a garden that kind of reflects that and will use it over a period of weeks or months in order to draw me into the presence of God. Well, I definitely want to return to that and get more detail, actually, on what that means. But I am curious about the title of one of your recent books, The Gift of Wonder, Creative Practices for Delighting God, which leads me to ask, is that perhaps another reason why we ought to think about being creative in terms of our spiritual practices? It is not oh. just about keeping our beliefs and spiritual life alive. It's making God happy in some way. Is that your position? Very definitely, yes. When I wrote The Gift of Wonder, uh, part of what I realized is that I grew up believing in a very austere kind of God. And as I started to become more creative in my ways of expressing my faith and of entering into the presence of God, I started to discover that not only I was having more fun, but I started to connect to a God that I believed is a fun-loving God as well. 
and really kind of connected to that joyful kind of side of God, which I think is expressed in the world around us. You know, there is nothing more joyful and exuberant in many ways than the world in which we live and the creation that we see around us. And so this kind of an approach has helped connect me in new ways and keep me open to the constantly changing nature of the world in which we live and to the God whom I love as well. I think another strength of your approach is that you aren't prescribing to people, this is what you must do. Here's steps one, two, and three, which kind of goes back to an old liturgy mentality, really. Instead, you challenge people to be creative themselves. So you show what you've done, and then you invite them to create what works for them in their context, their environment, their season of life, what have you. But you're giving permission to people to actually be creative in their spiritual practices. Oh, exactly. I think that God has gifted us all in different ways. And I think that those ways should be expressed in the ways that we approach God. You know, I think that unfortunately, many of us have learned to read the Bible and we've learned to pray in a way that is totally outside the realms of our giftedness. And because of that, it becomes stale or we turn away from God. You know, we don't grow in our relationship with God. We stagnate. And it's only, I think, as we get in touch with our inner self and who God has created us to be and apply that to the ways that we approach God, that we really get close to God. And that's different for every person. I can give people ideas. I can give them a sense of process that it can be helpful to follow, but I can't tell them this is the way you've got to do it. But what I do encourage people to do is to open their imaginations to allow the Holy Spirit to blow through and to give them a sense of what is best for them and in what ways they might connect to God more closely. I suspect that this is going to be a continuation of what you just said, but I'll point out the fact that you're a gardener as well, and I wonder what that means for you as we shift into colder weather, darker days. How has your life shifted and maybe how have your practices shifted? Well, this is a time, obviously, I am a keen gardener and most of the year I love to be outside working in the outside garden. But as the year comes to this point, I bring my practices inside and many of them do revolve around the creation of small contemplative gardens. You know, I always have one on my desk where I work and This is the focus of my devotional time in the morning. And often it's the focus of times that, you know, I pause during the day just to say a short prayer. And having this garden beside me is something that very much encourages me to focus. I think that we all need visual cues. And this is the kind of visual cue that is really good for me to draw me into the presence of God. So probably listeners have picked up by now the fact that you are from the South, (laughs) that you grew up in (laughs) the the Southern Hemisphere. The deep South, I tell people, yes. The deep (laughs) South, right. Yes. You know, I wonder if that fact that you grew up in one hemisphere and live in another, if that hasn't made you particularly sensitive to things like seasonal changes and the significance of darkness and light. Do you think that's part of why you're wired the way you are to be attuned to that? 
Definitely. I think that growing up in the Southern Hemisphere, where the liturgical seasons really, in some ways, were just not relevant to the seasons in which I was living, it was actually the first time I came to the Northern Hemisphere and experienced Easter here that it kind of was like the lights went on. And so I think that since that time, I've struggled with, well, how do I help people in parts of the world where the nights aren't dark at Christmas time or the weather isn't cold? And of course, it's at least half of the world's population that lives in places where it's not cold and dark at Christmas time. And yet so many of the practices that we kind of give to people are practices that are geared towards dark and are geared towards the middle of winter. And that just doesn't work. So I like to provide, you know, prompts that can help people develop practices that will work anywhere in the world. And that's certainly what I found with the contemplative gardens that I create. You know, you don't have to be in the wintertime to create these. In fact, I like to have something sitting on my desk to help me focus at any time of the year. And so it's really good to be able to refer these to the season in which I'm living rather to the season in which people say, in a way, I should be living. You know, I mean, I remember growing up in the Southern Hemisphere with Christmas carols about on a winter's night and things like that, and it just didn't click. (laughs) And I think it doesn't click for a lot of people that live in different parts of the world. But when you help them to find imagery, I mean, I think the garden is a prime place to find it, you know, of planting, of growing, of harvesting, of resting, and fitting it into the seasons in which you are at the moment, rather than into the seasons that the liturgical season kind of says, this is where you're meant to be at this precise point in time, I think it'd be a real help for all of us. But then there are other things. I think, too, Looking at the night sky is another thing. You know, it's different in the Southern Hemisphere than the Northern Hemisphere. And, of course, it changes from time to time. And that's something else that I think can be a tremendous prompt for us in terms of our spiritual practices. Absolutely. Well, as we hunker down and shut our gardens down and get our sweaters out, Folks in Australia are dancing the springtime in, <laughs> waiting, <laughs> waiting for sun and flowers. But on that note, why don't we talk about gardens? Let's revisit this idea of the garden that can be brought indoors. Tell us mm-hmm. about that and maybe even help us to think about getting started. If we like this idea, how might we actually begin this practice? Well, I talk about this in my most recent book, Digging Deeper, The Art of Contemplative Gardening, and it's focused on developing these kinds of gardens. And this practice for me began about 10 years ago when I got sick and tired of Advent reefs and Advent candles as they were presented to me. So I quickly put together a garden instead of a reef and put the candles into the garden. And I had so much fun and it drew me so much closer to God that the next year I decided to do it again. And then I found that at the end of the Christmas season, it's like, oh, I'm not sure I want to give this up. But what I did was I didn't just keep using the garden that I had. I started to create another garden. It had some of the elements of the past one in it, and that is often the case, but it was different. 
And so I developed this process that I go through at the beginning of a season when I think, oh, I think it's time for a new contemplative garden. And I start with dreaming. I spend some time imagining what are the elements that I would like to see incorporated in this garden? What would I like it to communicate both to me and maybe to others as well? So that's the first stage. And my second stage is gathering. I believe in using things that I have rather than in things that I might have to go out and buy. So I look for what is an appropriate container that I can use. And Forrest, you'd love to know that my current garden, I'm using the beautiful clamshell that you gave me. And it's also going to be the foundation for the next garden that I do. I'm just starting to work on a new garden at the moment. And so that's the dreaming stage, the gathering stage. One of my favorite times to create gardens for is Advent. And Advent is the time of waiting for the coming of Christ. In most Western traditions, it starts four Sundays before Christmas. And sometimes it can be as long as four weeks. Sometimes it's only just over three weeks because of whatever day Christmas Day falls on. But it's a time of waiting and we kind of walk towards the manger during this time. For some traditions, for the Orthodox tradition and for the Celtic tradition, which is the one that I've really grabbed hold of, it's a period of 40 days. And it always starts on November 15th. And I love this extended time of preparation for the coming of Christ. And I do find that the first week, it gives me a great time to plan with this extended time. I've got time to plan, you know, kind of I'm not thrown straight into Advent in a hectic kind of a way, but I have time to plan and to think about what it is that I really want to see come from the Advent season. And so it's just really good to have that extra time. And I find that particularly to have some time before we really ramp up into consumerism, you know, which is kind of heightened during what the stores like to call the 24 days before Christmas, they see it as a time for ramping up consumerism. So if we've started 16 days earlier than that, then we've got time to really kind of prepare ourselves to take some time to reflect and to really move towards the manger, practicing things that are really important for us. Mary DeYoung was on our podcast last year at this time. And one of the really interesting points that she made is that, as you put it, there is this ramp up to Christmas. And at least in the Northern Hemisphere, that means bright lights and bright colors and anything to distract us from the dark around us. But her point was, you know, our bodies are doing the exact opposite around this time. We're sort of slowing down with the seasons, right? And she says that at this point, we should be thinking more about rest and more about contemplation, Mm -hmm. not getting busier and busier and busier. I thought that was a really good point. And I think the idea of this little garden is something that could help us in that direction. I mean, to make one of these small gardens, it takes some focus, it takes some intentionality. It kind of centers your world on a point, at least for a time. Oh, it, as you it nurture does. the life, yeah, in this little space. It takes quite a while because there's that dreaming stage, the gathering stage, there's the creating stage, and then the use for contemplation. And then the last stage is a letting go. You know, one of the things that these gardens help me realize is that nothing lasts forever. 
And at the end of the season that I feel is the season for this specific garden, I'm able to let go of it. Sometimes I just rearrange things and make it into another garden. Sometimes I completely dismantle it and start afresh with a new container and a new approach to a garden. And it's really helped me to slow down, to take time to rest and to focus on, you know, what is really important. It's interesting, though, what you were saying about Mary, that we don't need all the light. Now, to be honest, I do enjoy a lot of light, but subdued kind of light. I have a ritual that I use to begin the day with that I think is one that this year I've kind of found really, really enriching. I start in the dark and I recite a little verse or prayer or poem, whatever you want to call it, that I've put together from John 1 verses 4 and 5. And it says, It is dark, but in you there is always light. Christ is the light of the world and his life brought light to everyone. His light shines in the darkness and the darkness will never extinguish it. And I recite that and then I I have what I call a circle of light. I have a circle of candles around where I sit in the morning and I light those. Now, most of them are battery-operated, remote-controlled candles, but I light them and then I sit in the middle of that aware of the fact I turn out all the real lights and I just have these candles lit. So there's that beautiful subdued light that I have as the day dawns, really. And I love that kind of combination of that light. You know, this is about seven o'clock in the morning here at the moment. And then I spend some time in contemplation. And then at the end of this time, I say, When I've finished and I start to turn out my lights, I say, God, thank you for your light that gives light not just to everyone but to every part of creation. I thank you that you are present in all things and around all things, shining your light through all things you created. So I've just found it to be a beautiful ritual for me, you know, that helps me accept the darkness because I have struggled in past years with seasonal affective disorder. And yet I find as I do this kind of a ritual that it really lifts my spirits in a way that, you know, I can't explain to a certain extent, but it has been a very enriching kind of ritual for me that has totally changed my emotional state at this season of the year. Let's talk a little bit more about solstice and what that means and what that means for our daily lives, but also perhaps spiritual practices. And maybe even pick up on that idea that I brought up from Mary's conversation that, you know, this is a time to, as you put it, embrace the darkness, Mm -hmm. uh, to walk into it boldly, not to fear it, not to frenetically try to distract yourself from it. Tell us a bit about what you call Blue Christmas uh, Mm -hmm. as it's connected to winter solstice. Yes, because I haven't really, you know, I know some people do some practices directly associated with the winter solstice, but what I've taken on instead is the practice of what's called Blue Christmas, that more and more people and more and more churches are doing. And basically this is a day, and it usually coincides with the solstice, and it's a day for people to express their grief 
for people to admit to the fact that not everybody finds Christmas to be a joyful time. You know, some people, if you've lost a loved one over the last little while, Christmas is not necessarily a joyful time. If you're struggling financially, it may not be a joyful time. And rather than kind of getting into the hype that pretends that this is a joyful time for everybody, I think we need a time for people to grieve. And we need to provide them, not just give them permission, but we need to provide them with tools that help them to make that possible. And a blue Christmas service is something that is ideal for this. And usually it's a service where people start in the dark and then we'll usually light candles <laughs> so that they have the light coming around them, but in a very contemplative, reverential kind of way, sometimes having music that really taps into that kind of a mood, but always ending on a note of hope as well. You know, I think that that's one of the things that is important is that we need to recognize that no matter how dark we feel, no matter how dark the nights get or the days get, there is always hope and expectation that the light will come and that sooner or later the things that weigh us down and that we grieve over at this time will change. And, in fact, one of the things that makes that possible is the coming of Christ on Christmas Day. Your switch to a community mode I find interesting. So it seems to me that what you're saying is a lot of what you talk about in your writings as creative liturgy, creative practices. It's not just an individual thing. It's not just for one person alone, meditating, praying, what have you. But there are community implications as well. And I, I wonder if that goes so far as to say that communities can actually create these things together. I think that's a very good point to bring up because you're right. Most of the things that I design or that I encourage are things that are really designed for community, either for a church community or for a small community of people that live together, maybe a family, extended family or friends. And I think that there is something very special about doing any kind of creative liturgy in a community setting. You know, I think that there's obviously times that we need to be alone but I think that there are very definitely times and circumstances in which community is so much better for us and when, which the practices have so much meaning when we do create them for and perform them in community. In fact, sometimes getting the community to create something together rather than saying, hey, this is what we're going to do today is a wonderful way to do it as well. And so it brings the creative energy of many different people into the situation. One thing that comes to mind when you talk about communities creating together, it seems to me that in this age when more and more people feel estranged from the church, where they don't feel at home there, even if they've been there all their lives and suddenly they don't find a place for them in the organized church, it seems to me that this could represent new life for folks like that, who are looking for ways to express the love and the faith they still have but who don't feel connected to some of the more conventional traditions, say, that churches would be practicing around this time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that, you know, even people that aren't going to church anymore crave that sense of community, and particularly at a time like Christmas, they crave being together with other people. 
And unfortunately, you know, that often just kind of degenerates into party going. But I think that if we as community can bring people together around a table, you know, around a dinner table or, you know, snacks or something like that, and think about practices that we would like to do together, you know, to kind of honour God, to honour the people even just in the room and to honour the world in which we live, I think is a very good way to do this. You know, you don't have to be a person of faith in order to develop meaningful rituals and you don't need to be a church community in order to develop meaningful rituals that revolve around your faith either. In fact, I think some of the most refreshing and creative rituals that I've seen and heard are ones that have been done in situations outside a usual church community. And, you know, some of them, of course, have ripples that start to move into church and can sometimes enliven the church. But the creativity doesn't usually occur in the church itself. It usually occurs outside, I find. So I have been at your table many, many times in the last, what, 12, 15 years maybe. And I find that you and your husband, Tom, managed to imbue meals and even imbue food with meaning mm. in ways that I always found quite profound and quite moving. And, you know, the winter months are a time when people often gather together around the table for meals. Mm -hmm. And it's in a more intimate, close setting like that. I am wondering if you could talk to us about how food fits into this way of thinking, how food and meaning and significance and season, how they all come together somehow. Well, I think you're right that, you know, I think food to me, both cooking, you know, creating a meal and sitting down with people in many ways is a sacred act. I think there's nothing more beautiful than sitting down to eat together with people, not just a celebratory meal, but even an ordinary meal. You know, we have a, a big house that is divided into three apartments, which we call a small intentional community. And we get together one day a week for a meal and usually some kind of a liturgical or some kind of a spiritual kind of a practice. And it's been just a wonderful, you know, that in itself has been a wonderful way to come together around food and to recognize the wonder and the sacredness, I think, of food. Also, if you don't mind me mentioning it, <laughs> at God's Base Light, you know, the website that I facilitate, we have just created a community cookbook. And we have 25 contributors from, I think, seven different countries and people, including Forrest, and people didn't just contribute recipes. They contributed stories that talked about where the recipe came from and the meaning that it had for them. And, you know, I think just reading the book for the stories, I mean, it was so touching as I was putting it together to read these stories and to have this sense, in a way, our good friend Graham Kerr said this, he said, it was as though we were sitting down together at a huge table to eat as he read through some of these stories. And I thought that was beautiful. And I think that that is an indication of the importance of food. You know, that not only as we sit together in a little group, but as we extend that hospitality of food to others, there is the sense that 
We really are all sitting down at table together. It's hard to describe what that means, but to me that's what hospitality is all about, is that sense of drawing people together into the table of God, I feel, you know. And thank you for those comments about that forest because (laughs) I think Tom and I are so used to doing it, we don't see it as being anything special. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you one thing that I've learned from you. There are some meals when we sit down and you just, you know, as a matter of fact, talk about how much of it was actually grown on your land, Mm. right? And you point out this and that and then, oh, but the olives, the olives are not from our garden, right? So, but the point of all that is, is we realize that we're eating the end of a story in a way, right? I mean, you planted these things months before, you tended Uh them all summer long, bear the mark of your cultivation, and then they end up on the table as a gift to us. And you always make us aware of where the food has come from. And if it's not from you, it's from the guests Mm -hmm. who have brought stuff that is special to them most often, which is, of course, the case with us. So I do think that, yeah, for you, probably it's become like breathing, but (laughs) I don't think everyone has that (laughs) sense of intentionality about food, growing, preparation, serving. So yeah, I think it is very significant and certainly has affected my life and my daughter's life. Mm. Oh, that's lovely to hear. Well, I mean, to me, there's nothing more delightful than being able to serve up a meal, a great portion of which has been grown in our garden. And I think that part of what we've lost because so much of our food comes from supermarkets these days is that delight of walking through the whole process, the delight of growing, the delight of harvesting, and the delight of eating together. And interestingly, putting on my medical hat for one brief moment, from what I have read, our bodies produce all kinds of substances that really, like when we harvest things, even when we look at things anticipating that we're going to be harvesting them, our bodies start producing hormones that delight, hormones of delight, you could say, because we're harvesting. And I think the same when we're cooking, there are kind of changes go on in our bodies <laughs> that say, this is a delight, you know, and that's part of how God has created us to delight in these things, to delight in the whole process as well. And it's part of what I think is really beautiful. Yeah. And I, I will also note that you often tie meals to some of these other practices. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm thinking in particular of a night where we started with dinner and we ended painting stones, right? <laughs> painting stones with different designs and such. And it was just, uh, I just, I loved the flow of that evening, you know, from community into a almost more of a ritual as we painted our rocks. But you often do that. You often have liturgy involved before and after. And yeah. Yes. Well, we did one just a couple of weeks ago where we had pizza and, you know, one person had made the dough, <laughs> the pastry dough, and then everybody brought different kinds of toppings. And so we then quickly had to cook them in the oven. And then afterwards we sat around and we painted gratitude pumpkins. And, you know, there were three kids, not just adults, and everybody had an absolute ball. It was just a wonderful, delightful evening of both eating and enjoying each other. And I love those kinds of opportunities to express more than just having a meal together. And I love the way that that term gratitude pumpkin just rolls off your tongue as if everyone knows what the heck you're talking about, (laughs) right? 
(laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's true. I mean, and considering I hadn't heard of such a thing until a year or so ago, I should explain. I mean, basically, we just get small pumpkins, we paint them, and then write words of gratitude on the pumpkins. Or, you know, can design the pumpkin around something that we're grateful for. And so it was just a very fun evening where people drew patterns and wrote words of gratitude on the pumpkins. It it was really fun. The kids did it too. I'm sure that people are wanting to know more about this. Some people wanting perhaps to have more ideas about what this creative spirituality looks like. And maybe also some inspiration to create some of their own traditions, habits, practices. What is the best way for them to connect to your work? Well, I think the book, The Gift of Wonder, is a very good one in terms of creative approaches. If people are interested in the gardens more specifically, then Digging Deeper, The Art of Contemplative Gardening, or people might just like to go to the website, godspacelight.com, and browse through some of the creative spirituality examples on the blog. That's also a way that they can connect and sign up for the newsletter and get more kind of access, I suppose you could say, to creative ideas, not just of mine, but of the many other creative people that contribute to the God Space Mm -hmm. Light blog. When you were speaking about lament and there needing to be space for lament, honestly, the first thing that came to mind was the sort of hidden lament I often feel about climate change and Mm. climate emergencies that we're hearing more about. So I'm just wondering, is there a way that this connects to that? (laughs) I mean, is there a way that creation care, our posture towards the community of creation is connected to this creativity of practice Mm -hmm. that you're advocating for? Oh, very much. I mean, I feel that grief for creation and what we've been doing to it, you know, is constant in me. It's, It's something that is... I think one of the reasons that my contemplative gardens are so valuable to me is because it's a kind of a sign of hope. (laughs) You know, one of the other things that I do at this season is I always plant some narcissus bulbs that hopefully will flower at Christmas time. And again, it's that sense of hope in the midst of despair because I do feel a constant sense of grief. And so, you know, what I'm looking for is that sense of hope that I can combine with it. Because even though it's right to grieve, we need to find the hope and we need to find also the little bits of hope that maybe we can grab onto and do something to change our own behavior. I was delighted. I was in the nursery, the plant nursery the other day, and one of the attendants, they were looking at the seeds that they had available and they had different kinds of grass seed, but they also had some of the no-mow lawn kinds of seeds there. And I heard one of them say to the other one, he said, we've got to get more of this next year because more people are doing away with their lawns. And I thought, hallelujah, (laughs) you know, people are recognising that, you know, lawn is not the most (laughs) beautiful thing that we can have in our backyards that gardens and that having plants that attract wildlife that don't need to be mowed, that don't need artificial chemicals to keep them growing and things like this can be a much better way to go than the way that we've tended to go in the past. And so it was just a real kind of sense of hope 
that I had that people are changing slowly. You know, now, unfortunately, I think it's too slowly. And I think we need to see an exponential rate of change. But, you know, there are signs of hope. And one of the things, Forrest, that I really appreciate about this podcast is that you guys are constantly sharing signs of hope. And we need those because otherwise we can despair all the time, I think, because there is so much that is going in the wrong direction in terms of the climate that we need the signs of hope and we need to grab hold of them and think, can I do something like this? So I appreciate what you guys do from that perspective. So I'm wondering as we wind down this conversation, is there one thing you'd want to say to people as we enter the next season, depending on which hemisphere we're in, what would you tell people now that you'd want them to take away from this conversation? (laughs) Become a liturgical rebel. (laughs) Become somebody who thinks outside the box. You know, somebody who adheres to the principles of your faith, but thinks of new creative practices that really stir your heart and stir your spirit. Because I think that we all need those things that fit us personally that fit the environment in which we live, that fit the family that we're a part of, and that fit the world that we're growingly aware of as well. And so, yeah, I call it (laughs) become a liturgical rebel and follow the guiding of the Holy Spirit. I suppose that's the other thing, because I don't think we can be liturgical rebels if we don't follow the guidance of the Holy Spirit. We've been in conversation with author and blogger Christine Aroni-Sign. If you want to learn more about her work and writing, you'll find helpful links on the podcast webpage, or you can go to her website called GodSpaceLightAllOneWord.com. By way of reminder, I'll be doing a special Q&A episode with my occasional co-host James when we transition to Season 4. So if you want to comment on any of the episodes of the past year or have any questions you might want to ask, Use the voice message function on the podcast webpage or send us an email at earthkeepers at circlewood.online. We'll also be talking about some exciting changes to the podcast, so if you have any suggestions about how we might better serve podcast listeners, please let us know, again, either by voicemail on the podcast website or by email at earthkeepers at circlewood.online. I'm Forrest Inslee, your podcast host. Our executive producer is James Amadon. Our producer is Dave Wolfers. Forrest Reed is the creator of our original music, and Timothy Connor is our podcast editor. Our research assistant is Alex Megerly, and Jessalyn Gentry is our social media director. Thank you, friends, for listening, and please join us for our next conversation on the Earthkeepers podcast. <laughs>